My guest is Simon Cooper. Simon Cooper is a journalist and a Financial Times columnist, and his new book is called Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tories Took Over the UK. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Thank you for having me on. Okay, well, your book has just come out. Interesting read, that's for sure. Many of my listeners of this podcast are not from the UK, so maybe some more background is necessary compared to maybe other interviews you've given about your new book. Uh, first of all, why is it just Oxford? People are familiar, of course, with the concept of Oxford and Cambridge, Oxford, but why is the focus of your book and why is the phenomenon centred around Oxford? It surprised me as well when I began researching it that there have been no post-war prime ministers from Cambridge that 11 of the 15 prime ministers since the war have been from Oxford. Only one went to another university in the UK, Gordon Brown, who was at Edinburgh. And the next prime minister, as we enter the last two of the Conservative Party leadership race, will also be from Oxford, either Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss. So I was amazed by the grip of just Oxford, not Cambridge at all, on British power. And you know, I call it an oxocracy, and I think it has a lot to do with the prestige of the Oxford Union Debating Society, which attracts you know, ambitious 17, 18-year-old politicos to apply to Oxford. And then, in many cases, the politics, philosophy, economics degree, PPE, which is taught at Oxford and not at Cambridge. So you see that both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, the two people who could be the next UK Prime Minister, both did PPE at Oxford. So what is the, 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 the appeal then of, of the PPE course compared to other courses? Clearly, there aren't any scientists either from Oxford uh, becoming prime minister either. So it, it's, it's a credible draw of the PPE course. Yeah, I mean, the one scientist uh, who I can think of in modern history who went to Oxford was Margaret Thatcher, who was yeah. a chemistry student. But the PPE course seems to offer, in a very superficial way, to people who want to run a modern country the kind of technocratic instrument kit that you'd need to do it because it's a bit of philosophy, a bit of politics, a bit of economics. You drop one of those subjects after the first year. The whole Oxford degree in any case, as with most Oxford degrees, is only 72 weeks at the university. So it must be one of the shortest degrees in the world. And then to divide it over three separate disciplines seems to be spreading the jam very thinly indeed. But it attracts people who um, I think have ambitions to modernize. It attracts the modernizers, whereas the backward-looking degrees like classics, which Johnson did, which is Latin and Greek, or history, which many other Brexiteers did, tend to attract more kind of British nostalgics, more focused on past British greatness. And then on top of public schools, especially Eton, opposed to state school, although a lot of state school educated people, including yourself, went to Oxford as well. Again, is this more of a, an obvious direct line? You do Eton and then you go straight to Oxford and do PPE? Yeah, I mean, Eton had a tough 40 years in terms of prime ministerial power. There had been three Eton and Oxford prime ministers in a row, 1957 to 1964. And then when Alec Douglas Hume, an Eton and Oxford man, not of great brain or achievement, uh, when he ran against Harold Wilson in 1964, he was also an aristocrat. He'd had to resign his peerage to enter the House of Commons. Wilson sort of ran a campaign saying, this country is modern. We have no need for these toffs. They're holding us back. And after Douglas Hume lost in 1964, it was more than 40 years before the Conservatives chose another public schoolboy as their leader. Uh, for 40 years, contextually, the, the Tories were led by 
state school educated people, most famously Margaret Thatcher, but also John Major, Ted Heath and so on. And so the return of the Etonians in 2005 with Cameron later with Johnson is really a new era where it turns out that conservative voters in particular actually like Etonians. They, there's something in British history that makes many people feel this sort of deference that Etonians, you know, men of a certain class with a certain accent are born to rule. And so they are welcomed back to front of stage in the era that starts in 2005. Is it my imagination, but uh, I have the impression from reading your book that uh, once you're in Oxford and you come from a state school, it's not exactly a melting pot. The the public school educated uh, undergraduates, especially uh, the Etonians, make it very clear that the state school crowd uh, are not of the same social uh, category, shall we say. Did you find that when you were at Oxford? I mean, if you're an Etonian like Boris Johnson and you arrived at Oxford in the 80s, you knew already probably well over 100 people because, you know, a very large part of your school class would come to Oxford. And then people you'd met through the upper class sort of boarding school network. Johnson's sister was there, uh, other girls in that kind of social state, uh, stratum. And so the very well-connected public school boys had little need to meet state school people. They, they already had their group, had their set. And going up to Oxford for them wasn't really... The stars of something new was this continuum of their whole boarding school universe, which went with them. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, there are all sorts of Oxford. There are a lot of very apolitical people who are not interested in uh, becoming prime minister. Uh, there's more academic Oxford, which someone like Dominic Cummings was very part of. Uh, people who spend a lot of time in library, libraries, sports, right. uh, sitting around in, in bars. So there are many different kinds of Oxford. But my, in my book, I focus on the, the, the political Oxford. Yeah. And then the Oxford Union is very public school dominated. And, and political Oxford in terms of people aspiring to become politicians and obviously in the government, if not prime minister, as opposed to the kind of broader establishment. A lot of, as I said earlier, a lot of Oxford people went on to become journalists like yourself. And uh, so there, there is a broader establishment aspect there as well, isn't that, beyond politicians? Yeah, absolutely. So... You know, famously in the UK, uh, senior civil servants, senior journalists, senior judges, but also senior business people at the kind of more blue chip companies tend to come from Oxford. So Oxford and Cambridge together produce a very, very large share of the British establishment. So much so, essentially about 1% of the British population goes to Oxford or Cambridge. And the other 99% who don't get the acceptance letter from Oxford or Cambridge at the age of 18 are told at that moment, your chance of entering the uh, ruling elite in any of its sectors is close to zero now. Goodbye. And so it's a very cruel and uh, enormous waste of talent. The book is not about Boris Johnson. It's much broader than that. But there is a, a reference, a number of references to him. And you quote somebody who's saying, Johnson's gift turned out to be for winning office, not doing anything with it. That's quite a prescient remark, given Boris Johnson's later career. No? Yeah, I mean, the Oxford Union, it didn't really run anything. So Johnson managed to get elected as its president. And what did the union do? What did it teach? It held elections every single term, so three elections a year, which was amazing training for how to campaign and win elections. And it organized debates, so it teaches you how to speak, uh, not necessarily with great analytical rigor, but Johnson always, you know, from his arrival at Oxford age 18, was a comic performer, which he always remained. 
uh, wasn't really able to do logic or analysis or draw on dossiers of facts. So he sort of always remained the Oxford Union president. And the sadness for Britain is that he remained so well in the most powerful role in the country and at a very difficult time for the country. So doing things, you know, um, changing the way people lived was never his ambition. His ambition was always to speak and to win elections. And on those terms, he was successful. You devote a chapter to, to Brexit. And I found that quite fascinating because at one, on one hand, you have, as you point out, a, a large proportion of MPs who studied PPE, uh, uh, 95% voted to remain in 2016. But you have a whole chapter about how a, a small clique, but obviously well-organized and very obviously very dedicated, committed clique, were determined to try, and even if it was a long haul, like Daniel Hannan, to get the UK out of the European Union. Is, what is the kind of causal link between their people's education in Oxford and this, this, this antipathy towards the European Union? Well, I mean, you know, the vast majority of people who went to Oxford probably voted Remain, as did the vast majority of university graduates in Britain. And in the book, I focus most on the cast of Oxford Brexiteers who were a minority at Oxford, but they're important because they won. And so the whole political elite of the 2020s, almost all of it was at Oxford in the 80s and 90s. Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, had done his undergraduate degree at Leeds and then came to Oxford to do a Bachelor of Civil Law. So he left Oxford in 1987, the same month that Johnson left. Uh, the Cameron group of conservative Remainers, he and George Osborne, most of all, were at Oxford. So Oxford produces all these politicians. But if you look at the Brexiteers, you know, people like Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Dominic Cummings, Dan Hanan. I think what inspired them was the idea, not so much Cummings, but the others, our caste is born to rule. We've known since the age of eight at boarding school that we were going to run the country. Men like us have always run Britain. And then when Thatcher, who was their heroine, turned Eurosceptic from 1988 with her Bruce speech where she warns against it, European super state exercising its dominance from Brussels, they think, hang on, we're going to rule the UK, Etonians, boarding school people like us. And now Thatcher is saying to us, the Brussels bureaucrats want to impinge on our power. Well, that's not going to happen. And so they took the sovereignty of the UK very personally, because the sovereignty of the UK had always been exercised by men like them. And so Euroscepticism in part is a kind of protective measure taken by a caste that has control of UK power. So it's a lot like taxi drivers fighting back against Uber. Right. They think running the UK is our thing. Keep out. And they showed a remarkable uh, perseverance. I mean, it's not easy maybe to compliment some of these individuals, but in terms of their tenacity and staying power, they, they were in it for the longer haul, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, not Johnson. He jumps on the Brexit bandwagon in early 2016, having never before advocated Brexit in speech or in print. But Dan Hanan, from his first term at Oxford, where he founds the Oxford Campaign for an Independent Britain, which is a kind of proto-Brexit organisation, becomes very powerful in the university. For 25 years from then on, he's fighting the fight against the EU, and pretty soon that morphs into, let's leave the EU. And Michael Gove uh, jumps on this in the early 90s. Jacob Rees-Mogg, while still at Oxford, joins the Oxford Campaign for an Independent Britain. So, I mean, I was astounded researching it, how many of the roots of Brexit you can trace back 
to Oxford in the late 80s, including the Bruges Group, which will become a very influential sort of anti-European think tank, which is founded in 1989 by a 20-year-old Oxford student called Patrick Robertson, who then leaves the university to run the Bruges Group, and he very soon attracts Margaret Thatcher as its honorary president. You also go on to talk about what you call a generation without tragedy, which I think has some links to the Brexit cause in the sense that none of these obviously future leaders had any experience of the previous world wars and unlike their their predecessors. I'm right in saying you they, they thought of Brexit as just their own cause they could they could latch on to and make their own. Yeah, I mean, if you're from the boarding school in Oxford cast and you expect to run the UK, you think, well, you know, by the time they're growing up in the 70s and 80s, the UK is is really quite a boring country in their mind. Because they're Fathers and grandfathers, you know, had overseen two world wars and empire and um, grandeur. And what have they got? You know, this kind of tame, low stakes, vegetarian, Brussels based present mm-hmm. where there's nothing more glorious on offer than the Falklands War. And so they yearn for sort of tragedy, for living in interesting times. They yearn for this great project and they can't really think of a project. Partly because Thatcher has completed more or less the right wing economic project. She's cut taxes and privatise sort of as much as is humanly possible by the time they reach adulthood. So what are they going to do with their power? They need something great and glorious. And in the end, that project, their mission of their generation becomes Brexit. Obviously, the focus of your book is the Conservative Party, but uh, you do mention in passing the, the, the Miliband brothers, uh, Ed Balls, Yvette Cooper, Beetle Mandelson, who did also study PP at Oxford. To what extent could you write a, a similar book from, about the Labour Party, or was it simply a curiously, a uniquely Conservative Party experience? Now, Oxford has always been a very Labour experience too. So uh, Tony Blair... Clement Attlee, Harold Wilson, most of the dominant Labour prime ministers, pretty much all, were at Oxford as well. And other than Corbyn, almost all the senior Labour figures of recent times. And I would have written a book about, I could have written a book about Labour at Oxford had these people run the country, had they remade the country. But the book has ended up being more about the Brexiteers because of all the factions at Oxford, the political factions who went on to Westminster, it was the Brexiteers who won, who, who seriously remade the country. I mean, the Oxford Labour Club was often just sort of a core of 25 regulars. So it's amazing how many of those 25 people went on to run the party, to the top of the party. Keir Starmer in his two years at Oxford was a very active figure in the Labour Club. What the Labour Club didn't do was uh, debates. I mean, in the 70s and 80s, they were boycotting the Oxford Union, which they saw as entitled, overpriced, uh, you know, immature public schoolboys making pompous speeches so they they didn't do it and so you see that in the house of commons where where johnson is much more at home in the the uh silly jokes and cuss and thrust and uh uh, personal attacks uh i think he called starmer something like captain snooze fest the other day which is very oxford union that kind of jokey humor and starmer is not a great speaker in the british tradition he he has a monotone voice uh sounds slightly querulous and so in some ways, Labour missed out on this Oxford Union uh, speech training, which, although superficial, is, is, can be very powerful in British political um, custom thrust.
A question about your experience there, Simon. You seem the, in the book to be quite ambivalent uh, about your own experience. Uh, while you were there, were you, did you see yourself as a kind of dispassionate, slightly semi-removed individual? Or did you launch yourself, throw yourself very much into the, the Oxford life? Or did you feel slightly apart from it? I mean, I loved it. I mean, uh, one of the critiques of the book that comes up is, oh, he, he hated Oxford. He has a chip on his shoulder. This is a revenge on Oxford. No, I had a great time. I learned a lot. I made great friends, some of whom I still have. Um, it, it, it was like a dream. And being in this beautiful place also, the, the beauty of it enhances the experience. I was a little bit of an outsider in the sense that I spent almost all my childhood abroad. I'd been at a school in Holland until I was 16. And so at Oxford, I was sort of discovering England as well. So I'd go and stay with friends in their, uh, their parents' homes. I went with one friend to his old boarding school to Sherburne, and I visited friends in Hampshire or Northumberland or around the country. And I sort of discovered English people and the, the way they made jokes all the time and um, the, the sort of curiosities of Englishness. I was um, very much like a foreign explorer, but I had a great time. So all these decades when the Conservative Party was not led by Oxford graduates and Etonians, but now they clearly are, do you think that it's, uh, in, in long term, obviously we've, we've been through what we have been through since Cameron became Prime Minister in 2010, but, uh, but beyond that, do you think that it's not healthy for the, for the UK to have this situation persisting uh, very much longer, or are we now sort of used to it? We're used to this bunch of uh, Oxford graduates rather uh, feeling rather entitled, but they, at the end of the day, they're just as good as any other category of, of politicians we might elect to the higher office. I think there's uh, something quite significant changing now. I think that there's a revolt, not so much against Oxford, but against, let's say, the boarding school caste, which passes through Oxford to power exemplified by Johnson, who almost to the point of parody exemplifies its flaws of sort of not reading the dossier, winging it, uh, using rhetorical skills uh, to get out of scrapes, treating politics as a game. And that, you know, Johnson is someone who would never have reached the top in a meritocracy because largely he just doesn't put in the work. He doesn't have the application, the seriousness. And so he got where he is because of where he came from. You know, he his defenders like to point out he's not a um, total tough. He got into Eton on a scholarship, although his father had been to boarding school. They come from a sort of 1% family, but let's say the bottom of the 1%. And I think what you're seeing now is there's an uh, impatience, like in 1964, with the tough ruling class, this idea that these people are being imposed on us just because of what they were born to. And Oxford and Cambridge are changing very radically. That surprised me. Just in the last four or five years, They've radically refocused admissions, taking far more state school pupils and also going to the poorest, most deprived state schools in the UK and sort of encouraging those schools and bright kids from those schools to apply and helping them grow accustomed to Oxford, organising open days. So now Oxford and Cambridge both have last year, 68% of new British undergraduates came from state schools, which for both Oxford and Cambridge is the highest on record. So, you know, there's a massive shift to a class diversity. Gender diversity is already assured because now most undergraduates are female at Oxford and Cambridge just because girls do better at school than boys. And they're going for racial diversity. And so I think that kind of Johnson, Johnson was the last hurrah, maybe forever, maybe just for a, a while, of that sort of Eton and Oxford elite. 
we are now moving into a period, I think, of a different Oxford producer elite. You said earlier that, by coincidence, the two remaining contenders for the leadership of the party and prime minister uh, are Sunak and uh, Truss, of course, who are both PPE uh, Oxford graduates, but they weren't obviously from public schools in, in, in the Italian sense. Uh, Sunak went to Winchester, which is one of the poshest schools in the UK, as you know, but <laughs> he came from a sort of non-traditional Winchester family. His parents were immigrants, father was a doctor, mother a successful pharmacist. So they were very much upper middle class, but they had not sort of born into the British boarding school caste. They entered it, and the British boarding school caste has always allowed room for sort of ambitious people from outside to elbow their way in, as the Sunaks did. And Oxford has also always sought to have a lot of those people in the mix. Now those people are meant to dominate the mix. So Sunak um, sort of entered that cast at a, at a very young age, but he's a bit more of an outsider to it. Do you see, therefore, there's a, a, some, there will be, starting more or less now with the, with the departure of Boris Johnson, a kind of pendulum swing at the top of British politics, away from this Etonian Oxford dynamic, if you call it that, uh, towards a more classic traditional Oxford or Oxbridge-educated top politicians? I think the, let's say, 2005 to 2022 period, which was dominated politically, 2010 to 2022, dominated politically by two Etonians, Cameron and Johnson, will be seen as a throwback, a throwback to sort of the 1950s in terms of who in Britain held power. I think going through Oxford is still going to remain a huge advantage for politicians seeking power because that's where they build the networks as well. And it, it sort of brands them with seriousness and, um, you know, there, there's a deference of the rest of the public to Oxbridge, I think much too much deference. So Oxford may continue to produce the elite, but it will be a, a different kind of person who will tend to end up on top. Okay. Well, we have to leave it there, Simon Cooper. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul.